Are you speaking from ego? Are you speaking from service? And the, the interesting thing about that is as a speaker, it's enhanced my drumming because I realize that I am here to be of service. I'm here to be of service to the band and I'm here to be of service to the audience. It's not about me. You need to have enough ego to create the confidence to do whatever it is you are there to do performance-wise, but anything above and beyond that becomes ego. And it starts to detract from the goal of being of service. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people who live just behind the curtain in a crazy world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. In this episode, we are going to be fusing the worlds of influence and rock and roll. A few months ago, I had the huge, huge privilege of being introduced and being able to spend some very precious time with the incredible Mark Shulman, who at the time of this interview was actually in the middle of touring as the lead drummer for multi-platinum global phenomenon, Pink. In addition to having performed for over one billion, yep, you heard me right, one billion people during his career, alongside world-class performers such as Cher, Billy Idol, Simple Minds, Beyonce, Tina Turner, the list is literally endless. Mark is also the author of the very fitting book entitled Conquering Life's Stage Fright, in which he interviews global powerhouses like Tony Shea, CEO of Zappos, Jeremy Piven, well-known actor from The Entourage, Alan Bean, Apollo 12 astronaut, out of a sheer determination, and you'll, you'll get to hear his sheer determination, and a personal commitment to decoding the magic of world-class performance. In other words, what does it take to show up, reframe your fears, and own what you've got with every cell in your body? Now, what I loved about listening to Mark talk about the learnings from and the process of writing, that particular book, he's actually halfway through writing his next book at the moment, is that it's a philosophy that sums him up entirely. While others are partying hard on the tour bus, Mark is sat with his headphones on, trying to unpack what makes masterful performance great so that he can show up even harder at the next location. I first I first met Mark on a cold winter's morning in Sydney. I'm, I have no idea what I was expecting. Maybe someone vaguely and understandably tired after performing in front of an insane 21,000 people the night before. But the man that burst through that door and quickly shot out again, determined to make me a coffee, literally lit up the room. As I would, as I would soon find out, this is one of the most engaged, curious, energized human beings you could ever spend time with. Which also speaks to the heart of this concept, this concept of the rock star mindset. The, the idea that attitude and energy are the primary fuel of any kind of world-class performance. And everything, down to the phone call you just took, the first conversation you had this morning and the tweet you're about to send, is a form of performance. Like any field, mastering performance at a world-class level is not about faking it. 
That's not what Mark's about. It's not about faking it. It's not about putting on a show. It's about choosing your state, harnessing your energy, committing to a lifetime of consistency, always the toughest bit, showing up and leaving everything you've got in the arena. So what did we talk about? During our conversation, we went rock star hard into so many questions that I had running around my brain since I first started learning about Mark's career, including why what we perceive as fear, notice the word perceive, can be easily reframed as something manageable with some simple mental tools. Now, one of those that I really want you to listen out for over the next hour is the question, am I free to fail? I'm not going to go into it. You'll hear more about it. But I have literally used that question a hundred times since this interview, every time I'm about to take a leap into something that feels larger than me. The habits and rituals that literally transform paralyzing fear into excitement. What it means to pick the stick back up. Love that phrase. Pick the stick back up and carry on after any major setback. How to embody real confidence and the difference between that and rock star certainty. How to get out of your own way massive one for me at least and be of service choosing the words I get to do this as opposed to I have to do this what he took from interviewing some of the world's most incredible performers of our time and the moment the moment that motivated him to seek them out and why to him having a rock star mindset is nothing to do with fame and more to do with understanding that there are no small moments every moment is critical so, get ready to flex your rockstar muscles. Soak up the insights of this insanely insightful human being. Whether you are a musician, a parent, a CEO, a doctor, a carpenter, a student, or just someone contemplating their next great leap, this episode is for that moment. That moment that we all know, that moment where you have to choose between showing up with every shred of what you've got or letting an opportunity to make a real and memorable impact pass you by. Please sit back or don't sit back, stand, run, get into a drumming pose and enjoy my once in a lifetime conversation with Mark Shulman. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Shulman. Julie, so great to meet you in the storage room. I mean, boardroom. I, when we se- it was so funny because when I seried you, I said, I'll meet you. I seried, I'll meet you in the boardroom. And it came out, I'll meet you in the storage room. I know, I got and, that. And my wife and my kid were laughing about that. It's like, oh, he's gonna, so I was going to go meet a, a female interviewer in the storage room. Okay. It, it was Just a weird moment when it arrived. Right. Yeah. When, when I got it and I was like, storage Okay, yeah. like I'll our, roll with our, that. Our, our, is this guy a little uh, kooky or what's going on here? Well, we are sat here in a boardroom, not in a storage Yeah, in the boardroom. It Although is we would have done a, it With a, a gorgeous room. view of the key. So. I know, look at that. What a day. Sydney Harbour at its finest. So I'm going to kick off the way that I would usually kick this off, which is, I don't even feel like I need to ask you this question, but I'm going okay. to anyway. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? You know, that's a complex question for me. Because the reality is that uh, I'm extroverted in some contexts and part of me really feels like an introvert because part of me sometimes socially wants to, I don't want to say recoil, but just wants to pull away and wants to have a lot of alone time. And uh, 
I think it's the balance of both. Because you know, some people really do crave the attention and really do want it all the time. No, I'm not that way. Like I'll go on stage and I'll get off and I'll sign autographs. I'm talking about when I'm speaking especially. And I'm so present, I'm so present. And when the moment I'm done, I just go to my room where I just, I just can't wait to be by myself and just have collect my own thoughts because for me it's the balance of energy. Because extroverts, you need to constantly give out energy, and I love giving out energy when it's important, but as an introvert, you need to be able to absorb and sort of refuel. So the introvert part of me, I would call the refueler. <laughs> so I truthfully believe that I'm both, honestly, although most people would say, oh, he's an obvious extrovert. Not true. Because I know people that really do, are really on all the time. They're true extroverts. I think the... It seems to be true for a lot of people that I talk to that you you can bring it when you need to bring it. Like you you can tap into that energy yeah. when it needs to arrive. But in order yes. to refill those batteries or refuel, you just need to go and be on your own and spend some silent time just, as you said, collecting your thoughts, coming back in, pulling your energy back in. Yes. Which the reason I asked the question is that it's a bit of a myth I find when talking to people about why they don't, and we'll get into your journey, you've performed in front of over a billion people. I mean, to most people, that would sound like their worst nightmare. Yeah, because, you know, certainly public speaking is a greater fear than death. Than death, yeah. (laughs) And I think a story behind that is often that it's okay for him, he's an extrovert. And that's the reason I ask, because I think for most people... There's, they've had to learn either they're an extrovert and they've had to learn how to refuel or yes. they're naturally an introvert and they've had to learn how to tap into the energy when it's required. And so it's interesting because somebody like Tony Shea is an interesting study because Tony really, I, I know him pretty darn well because I've interviewed him twice and then we became friends, but Tony, I truly believe, is an introvert. But he has has a communal living space where he has an Airstream park where he lives and everybody lives together. And, and when he used to own the building, that his office, people would his, where he lived, people would walk in and out of where he lived. And you could take tours. You could actually see his, his, his living space. But there's something about him that's extremely introverted. And, and you feel like, well, it's fascinating because there's this balance where he's not just... Um, always expressing and, and he's a little quiet and when you talk to him it's almost hard to to bring to for he has to feel comfortable around you you know the true extroverts are the people that like the moment you meet him like you know hey let's talk about this and i'll tell you everything and, blah, blah, blah. and like tony is not an example of that he's an example of he has a lot of people around all the time but you really need to he needs to feel comfortable and trust you until he's really going to communicate stuff to you of real quality and I think there's a space in there for, for active choice as well. Yeah. You know, I know the mo- as you were saying when you sign when you're signing, you know the moments where you actively choose to show up, the times yes. when you actively choose to open up your home, the times when you actively yeah. choose to be in a certain frame of mind. Yes. And then having clear enough boundaries to go and now is not the time. Understanding, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like for me, when when we're when we're on stage, I mean. I expend so much energy on stage. I give every bit of my soul and my being. And it's classic. I mean, especially as I've gotten older, maybe because I'm older and I actually just am more tired when I'm when I get off stage. But we get on the tour bus. A lot of the people in the band just, you know, continue the socializing and continue the playing games and watching, you know, hanging out and drinking or whatever. 
And so much of the time, I just God, I just want to go to my bunk and be by myself. I just need the time to myself just to refuel and, and, and just to, to be alone and read a book or do whatever, to watch a movie, you know. It's not you the know, traditional play words view with of friends. A, of a I'm addicted to words with friends. Do something, you know. It's not the traditional view of a, of a tour bus playing like, words with oh, friends yeah, in a your rock bunk. Star. And a lot of people say, well, don't you need hours to wind down? And a lot of people do. They need hours to wind down. Man, I can walk off the stage... I could walk right in my hotel room. I could be asleep ten minutes later. That is a useful. That is a useful skill to have it in is life. A good skill, I think, but, just in general. But also, I, I get exhausted. Yeah, one of the focuses today is going to be talking about stage fright, okay. conquering life's stage fright. Yeah, which that's I know. My first book. It's your first book, and it all started with you. I think with a failure to perform in front of four people back at the beginnings of your journey. Can you tell me that story? Well, it, yeah, it, was a, it was an unexpected thing because I had already been performing for years. So what had happened was I, I, I got, in the, got in the context. Essentially, I was called by a buddy of mine, Dan Reed, who was one of my peers who already had a record deal, was already touring the world, had already opened up for Bon Jovi, knew all these rock stars. And, and he gives me a call and he says, so Mark, last night I was hanging out in the bar with a guy from Journey. He's like, oh, Okay, great. And they were starting a new band called Bad English. It was an all-star band. And in, in, instead of hiring a, one of their contemporaries, a drummer that was their agent, a famous guy, they wanted to hire like a newbie, basically basically a virgin. And he said, mate, I think you'd be, well, he didn't say mate, he said probably dude, because that's what we say in America. But he said, I think you'd be perfect, man. I know you haven't been on the big stages, but I think you'd be a perfect audition for him. What do you say? I said, well, my God, this would be great. So, you know, a week later, I was in the rehearsal space auditioning for Bad English. Now, I'd already been on stages. I already had had my own band. So part of it was I thought I was ready. Um, and, you know, the first thing Jonathan Kane, the leader of the band, said, he said, okay, we're just going to play a little bit of a song. We want you to listen. And I was nervous. I was sitting on my drum, my drum throw, and I was nervous. But they played the song, and I was like, oh, my God, the nervousness went away. Here I am. I'm like, like, and I just relished the moment. I got really present for a minute. Like, wow, I'm in the middle of all of this world-class talent. But the moment they stopped and it was my turn to be with them in the world class, that's when, like, classic anxiety. I just got so anxious. My palms were sweating. I felt like I was going to pass out. I literally, he, he counted off the song, and I felt like I'd been pushed out of an airplane, falling backwards without a net. I was just completely lost. I was overwhelmed with stage fright and, and anxiety. And that is what triggered one of the worst things that could ever happen for a drummer, especially as I lost contact with my own internal tempo, my own internal meter. I lost contact with my performance ability. And then I was, and then he just stopped. Jonathan Kane stopped the band 30 seconds. I said, Mark, you're rushing horribly. Come on, man, get it together. And I literally felt like the only thing that was rushing was the blood out of my head. I was dizzy at that point. And I started playing again and, and I, I realized that I was out of my league. And I realized that later on, the, what the experience sort of made me, it humbled me. And I made two promises to myself. One is I said, you know, nobody's ever going to tell me I'm speeding up or slowing down unless I want to speed up or slow down. Because I realized that I hadn't refined my craft enough. I wasn't ready, obviously, or I would have been, that would, I would have been overwhelmed. And the second uh, promise I made to myself is I'm going to bust my nerves and fear into submission. So the first, I solved the first issue by finding the perfect 
a course that I could really master my internal meter, my internal sense of time, which is the foundation for any drummer. And then I come to find out it's not the foundation just for drummers, it's for every musician. So it was for all musicians. And I spent hours and hours a day and I thought I was going to be playing drums. Turns out I was clapping. I was just working with a metronome, which is the timekeeping device, learning how to just really, really internalize and understand tempos and feel them and feel them intrinsically so I would never rush. And then the rest of the journey was I spent the next 20, 25 years analyzing, discovering, researching, networking until I uncovered habits and rituals um, that would allow me to sort of transform fear into confidence. So the book that I wrote is, it's the, 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 the tagline is about overcoming stage fright. The, the, the um, takeaway is that it's about the three C's, clarity, capability, and confidence. And it's all about how you establish true confidence. And based on the, the simply stated that you need to have real clarity about what is your goal, what matters most, what are you trying to achieve. Um, in, uh, you know, you, so you're identifying your goal and you're determining the skills you need to get there. And capability, your capability means you're actually truly developing that skill set, like Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours. You're putting in the time and energy. So when you're in the position, I look at it like I wanted to be, no matter what time of day, no matter what circumstance, if it was four in the morning and somebody splashed ice cold water in my face and said, get on the drum set, you've got to play perfect time and meter, I could do it. So I had to put in enough time and energy and hours after I'd already spent most of my life playing drums to even take my, my skill set to another level because that's what gave me real confidence. So the next time I did an audition, or the next time I got on a, when I finally got on a big stage, I had true confidence because False confidence is very dangerous. So it really is about having a clear goal, developing the capability, real specific capabilities to, to drive you and to enable actual real confidence. And so when I wrote the book, I interviewed dozens of top performers in all these different fields, you know, sales, technology, finance, healthcare. That's where I met Tony Shea and Guy Fieri and Alan Bean, the astronaut, rest in peace, and Jeremy Piven, and I interviewed Eric Weinmeier, the blind climber of Mount Everest, who actually told me, man, I wish I'd had the opportunity to read your book before I went through the Kumbu Icefall 18,000 feet up. Because it's a way of establishing a pattern and doing some specific exercises that you can do to understand how to either be more clear or how to then take that clarity to create, to spend your time wisely and, and the most effectively to create the capability so that you can have real confidence. So now when I walk on stage, because I tell people, look, if you're not prepared, you should be scared, damn it. Right? I mean, if like, think about that. Think about going on stage. Like, if, if I were to go on stage with Pink as an example and say, and, and, and I, I've done this before. I've, I've had to sub for people. I did as much homework as I could. But I tend to have more anxiety if I go on stage if I'm not that familiar with the music because I kind of should. It's appropriate. That's your, your body's natural response to being unprepared. Um, it's the deleterious anxiety. If you have issues that move beyond that, you might have other associations. Then you know maybe therapy can help, or maybe just reorienting how you think about things. Um, so that's a, kind of an overview of the reason why I wrote the book and the takeaways from that particular book. I love just going back to the beginnings of what you were saying there. The 
the clapping to the metronome. There's a there's a well-known coach here in Australia. He doesn't do it anymore. But a lot of the the talent that's come out of here that's now you know top of the speaking world globally that they they come from this one man, and he is well known for this for a particular technique where he would draw a face on the wall, a smiley face on a wall, and he would stand them in front of that face and he would say, right, do your presentation. And now do it again. And now do it again. And he would just leave them talking to a wall for hours. He said, because if you can do it and not expect anything back, you can do it and expect nothing back, then you can do it in any situation. But if you are doing it, waiting for the audience to clap or smile or approve of you, then you're basically handing over all the power and you're going to get derailed pretty wow. fast well i learned two things one is that when i when i when i hooked up with my first speakers bureau and got my first opportunity to do my first speech for a very small group um one of the agents said you know our top speaker he will not go on stage until he has rehearsed his speech 100 times and that is stuck in the back of my head today my daughter and my and my wife are going to go on a uh, they're going to go to a climbing wall with some of the people on the stage on on the tour and i'm doing a showcase next week and a speech next week i will be running my speech i'm always running it always refining it i will sit in the strangest places to to run my speech and here's another thing I discovered in response to what you said, because I love that technique of not expecting anything in return. When, and it's, it's an interesting dichotomy for me, because understand, I come from the world of rock and roll. I come from the world of going on stage as a hired drummer, pr- pretty much, for these world-class artists that the moment they get on stage, they're adored. So when I walk on stage with Pink, everybody's screaming and crying. They're, they, they want to love her. It's the easiest thing in the world as far as audience response. When I walk onto a corporate stage, they see a drum set, they see a freaky rock and roll guy with, with freaky hair, they have nothing to, they don't know what to expect, and they're like crossing their arms, most of them like, okay, dude, you better impress me, give me something useful, because I, I'm going to give you an hour of my time, this is a very, very long conference, you better damn well have something with some a value as opposed to just being a rock star. So and it's like we were saying before we came on air, they've probably just watched two economists yes, in a row. Right. Their energy is low. Right. They've got a thousand emails that they could be answering. Right. They're not they are the opposite. A, a, gr- a, group, a group of accountants is the yes. opposite to a room of teenagers adoring pink. If you so just imagine a, the opposite. As a speaker, it's fascinating because I've walked off stage. Now I don't do it so much anymore because I've spoken enough to understand what that gentleman who's the gentleman you're talking about? That coach, that speaker? Oh, I'd, I'd rather not. He's, oh, okay. um, yeah. I'll go off script. He's actually, he's pretty sick at the moment, so I'd rather okay. leave him But anyway, it. like he was saying, I, I've learned now that audience response is not a gauge to how well my content is being received or the impact I am having. Because I've had some audiences that, that are just naturally wild and naturally responsive and gregarious. And I've had some audiences that were so dry, I literally walked off stage and said, oh my God, I completely failed. Until the end. When a woman walks up to me and she's got tears in her eyes and says, you changed my life. Mm. And that's when you realize, how dare I judge the audience response? It's not their job to respond in any way. To prop you up. To prop me up. That's just my ego. I am there to communicate. I'm there to be authentic. I'm there to give, uh, tell stories, tell my story and give them some messaging and some content that is of value to them that they can immediately create, you know, make actionable. 
or there's no reason for me to be there. I mean, the only reason to give a speech is to motivate people to take action, and we know that. It's not to make ourselves, not to, I, I don't want someone to, for, when I'm done to walk off going, wow, Mark was great. I want someone to walk off going, wow, I feel great as a result of the information he gave me. And they're very different mandates. Are you speaking from ego? Are you speaking from service? And I decided, and, what, and the, the interesting thing about that is, as a speaker, it's enhanced my drumming because I realize that I am here to be of service. That's my only job. I'm here to be of, when I get on stage with Pink, I'm here to be of service to the band, I'm here to be of service to her, and I'm here to be of service to the audience. It's not about me. It ain't about me. And when I finally understood that if you, you need to have enough ego to create the confidence to be able to do whatever it is you are there to do performance-wise, whether it's play drums or communicate a specific message to a bunch of IT people or salespeople. That's how you need that amount of confidence. But anything above and beyond that becomes ego. And it's superfluous and completely starts to detract from from the the goal of being of service. But it also, you know, if you are... And it's so easy to do because when you're nervous, you are naturally in your own head. It's mm. one of those sensations that pulls you naturally Absolutely. into your own head. And when you are naturally, when you're in your own head, you start what I would call shadow boxing, which ah, is where you start going, great. you know, you're boxing. Oh, oh my goodness, he just frowned at me. He hates this. Yeah. Oh my goodness, she just picked up her phone. Oh my goodness, that person just went to the toilet. I'm sure that they're leaving yeah. because they hate everything yeah. that I've just said. Yeah. And so to pull funny. yourself out of that, actually a tool that someone once gave me, again, another amazing coach once gave me, he said, when you, when you stand up in front of people, however big or small, find your lighthouse. Find your lighthouse, which is the person who's smiling, usually. Yes. Find your There's lighthouse and just anchor yourself them there. Speak to them, look at everybody else, but speak to them until you've settled it within yourself enough to pull yourself out of your own head. Yeah. And then you can come out to the room. Yeah. So do that to support yourself first rather than trying not to be in your own head because yeah. that can sometimes be pretty tricky. Well, and it's funny because I have two, <clears throat> two things that I've told people. One is uh, I, my, philo- my belief system is if you've done the work, because remember, clarity, capability, confidence, you need to have done the work. If you really know you've done the work in your heart of hearts, yet you have you know, some extreme sort of fear or stage fright in your head, I say... You know, if you are in your head, who are you thinking about? And, 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 I, get, and I get them to, to give me the answer that they eventually come to, which is, I'm thinking about myself. I said, well, who should you be thinking about? Uh, them. I said, you're not here for you. You're here for them. When you go on stage, love them. I mean, my first thought, especially if it's a dry audience, and I, and I still get nervous. I just think, I'm just going to go out and love these people. I'm going to look at them with love and feel the love, feel the, uh, the, the fact that I'm there to be of service. And then I also recall a story. I remember being out with Foreigner and we'd done so many shows that I walked on stage one night and I realized I'm not feeling a thing. And I thought, that sucks. I'm not in peak performance because you want to have a little bit of that energy, a little bit of the nervous energy because it's actually, um, it's, it provides... It, it sort of gives you a, a, a sense of um, hyper-attention. You're hyper-attuned. It actually makes you perform better. So I realized, well, I'm not playing for the people anymore, so I have to figure out a way to empathize with them so I get a little bit of the butterflies back. So instead of running to my drum set, I started running out into the front of the audience and connecting with their eyes. 
and feeling their excitement, Rem- remembering for them, I might have played this was the feels. First time. I, I might have played feels like the first time five hundred times, but for them, it's their first experience. And when I and then I started getting the butterflies back. I thought this is great. So then I just started. I wrote a big old smile on my snare drum to remind me to be in touch with their experience. Put myself in their shoes, just like the opposite when you're at a corporate event and you know that these people have been through two economists and they might be tired and it might be, you know, they might want a coffee break. So I just think immediately, wow, if I were in their position, what would I need to hear? Who would I want me to be right now for them? And I try to really engage them from their viewpoint. I try to see it from their viewpoint, which is great in all communication. It is. I mean, with that, you've actually said, I've heard you say, that all communication is a performance, whether it's a text, yes. an email, a conversation. And Everything. I have to admit, the first time I heard you say that, I had a, a feeling wash over me of, oh my goodness, that's overwhelming. That's an overwhelming thought. Yeah. And I think it's probably worthwhile just looking at the word performance in that. Yeah. What do you mean by the word performance? Because obviously you don't mean that you have to, you know, you know, I was joking with you this morning. I put on my sparkly top to yeah. see you today, and you yeah, <laughs> and you do look marvelous. Oh, I thank you. And you know, we're not talking about a performance where you jazz everything up. What do yeah. you What do you mean by performance in that well, context? My daughter, in in her her astuteness, and this is when she was only seven, because I talked. We talked about this whole performance, and she goes, "Daddy, everything's a performance, even when nobody's watching." I thought, "Oh man, you smart kid." Performance just means you are aware of every action, every nuance, every detail. And what I talk about in my speech now is that I said, if just assume that viewpoint for a minute. If you assume that every word, every nuance, every bit of body language that you speak to your customers, your clients, your associates, your family is a performance, and you assume that, and just assume the viewpoint that every single bit of, every written word, every document, text, tweet, email is a performance, you start paying attention to all the nuances and realize that the details actually matter. And if you understand that the details really do matter, then you become acutely aware of what you are doing and what others are doing, and it makes you just more in tune and more present. And then, you know, when I get deeper into my, my presentation, I talk about, you know, rock stars love to party. Partying isn't in the substance, it's in the attitude. And I said, rock stars are also known for living in the now, baby. You know, we're living in the now. But the truth is, all we have is now. Life is just a series of nows. I told Pink that. It blew her mind. She said, wow, what a concept. But think about it. Life literally is just a series of nows. I mean, the past exists in, you know, in books and movies and our memories and history, but it really is gone. And the way that we live now is sort of determining our future. We're kind of living into our future, so to speak. So my feeling is like if you pay attention to the nuances of the now, everything is a performance, you just start to, first of all, you have a better time. And I also talk about, because I use rock and roll as a metaphor a lot because that's what I come from, but it's about having a better time with what you're doing. And my feeling is the more attention you're paying to what you do, you just enjoy it more. Even the most mundane stuff, if you're really like in the present, like I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm just filling out this, this, this form of this document or this, this, this whatever, whatever you happen to be doing, and it might be your thousandth time, but you really stop and kind of get into it and appreciate the value and the nuance, wow, that, that changes the experience for you. And I talk about you know viewing things as a get-to versus a have-to. You get to do this, because a get-to feels like it's a choice. A have-to feels like a chore. You know, get-to feels like um, 
uh, you're the cause. You know, have to feels like the effect. So my feeling is like even the most mundane stuff, especially at work, we all think about what do I have to do? What do I have to do? Well, what if you switch that have to do and get to just for fun, just to see what happens? And that kind of leads me into what is the new concept of my next book, and that's what I talk about now, which is ABC. It's Attitude Behavior Consequence, which is that we can't control what happens to us, but no matter what happens, we do always have the power to control, choose our attitudes. And it's and think about that. It sounds simple, but your attitude is your point of view. It's where you're looking from, and where you're looking from determines what you see. And I'm trying to help people and empower people understand that, like, wow, you know, you might have had a really challenging time at work. You might have some adversity with a, with a client, with an associate. But you can choose the way that you view that, the meaning that you attach to that, so to speak. Why that's critical is because that attitude is what drives your behavior. And your behavior, and one attitude can drive many behaviors, and your behavior is what determines the consequences of your life. It's ABC, attitude, behavior, consequence. And it sounds so simple, but it's profound, and it works, and I use it every single day. And I do attitude shifts all day long, because I can still be grumpy, I can still be whiny, I can still be angry, and I make choices with my wife, with my kid, with my associates, when I'm on stage, if I drop a stick, you know, dropping a stick on stage is the ultimately most embarrassing thing for a drummer. But if I drop a stick and then I um, harp on it, it will screw with the rest of my performance. If I go, oh, I dropped a stick, cool, pick up a stick, I'm on to it. And is that How a wonderful, oh, amazing metaphor? Like it's, great, we, it's a great metaphor. We all yeah. have different versions of we, dropping a we stick. We all dropping a stick, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, you know, how and many different versions. It's funny, I've never used that in my speech. I might start using yeah. that now. It's, it's actually a great It's example. beautiful because it's just, I think, I just dropped the stick. Just pick the stick back up. And I love the, right. I, ha, I had this one thing that I used to say to my team always, and that is, um, you are responsible, you, are, you, are, you can only control. You are only responsible for your attitude and activity. Yeah. The only two things you control, attitude and activity, and those are the only two things I will ever hold you accountable to. And the attitude is what drives the activity. That's the thing for people to understand is the attitude is what comes first. It really does begin with that because that's what drives everything else. And also if you you attempt an activity with with a bad attitude, it's not going to work. Or the wrong attitude. Or the wrong attitude. I'm not even going to qualify it as good or bad. It's just your approach to it. But an equal if you do nothing. Equally, yeah. if you have an amazing attitude, you, you're happy as a clam, yeah. you come in very positive and you make no phone calls and, right. you, and you do not equally. Right. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not yeah. going to work out. Um, I want to, I want to keep going into the, into some of the interviews that you did and, and cause you've got some incredible, incredible stories. But firstly, I have this question. This question is just more so for me. You, as I said, you went on to perform in front of a billion people, a billion people yeah. and pink, who you're on tour with right now, Foreigner, Cher, Billy Idol, Beyonce, Tina Turner, like the list literally just goes on and on. What is that like? Like what, when I was doing my research and I was trying to imagine that, I was trying to imagine it and I was kind of, you know that moment when you look out? Yeah. Because I've had a small experience of it on, on much, much, much smaller stages. That moment when you look out and you see all those faces does it still because you touched on it just briefly before does it does it still make you anxious or is it a bit like just an everyday thing for you right now do you still have that anxiety or or yeah or well here's the thing we uh we my nickname from my boss pink is disneyland 
because I'm Mr. Gratitude. You know, she calls me the happiest place on earth. The truth is I'm not always happy. But I use gratitude as an example of an attitude shift. I, I use this, this attitude. I don't take it lightly. I cre actually create it to attitude shifts. They're conscious. Um, so one of the things that I do on stage is I am constantly, and I stop every single show, many times a show, and I just stop, get really present, just say, wow. I just want to really embrace this moment really thoroughly. I don't want to take this for granted. And I just look at, I look at the, the audience and I try to just connect with every area, every being that I can with gratitude and love and joy. And, and again, these are decisions because you can just let it go by. And or you let it drown you. Let it overwhelm you. Or let it overwhelm you. Um, I... The reason why I don't get overwhelmed, another little sort of trick or viewpoint, I should say, that I have, and I think that you understand this because you touched on it earlier when you even talked about finding the light, the one person with light, is you are literally just having one-on-one -on -one relationships just with a lot of people. That's another interesting way to look at it because we get overwhelmed because you see a big crowd. The reality is it's just you and one person at a time. One of the things that's so beautiful about Pink is I be truly believe that, that, the, the, that the, audience, the audience, when they're inside, among other people, that melts away. And they're just having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with her. And so I look at it as like a lot of one-on-one -on -one relationships because that's kind of the way it should be. You know, when you, it's like when you're engaged in a movie or a great book, you are just one-on-one -on -one in that experience. And... Any great performer makes you feel like it's just you and them. And I watch these people. I joke, one of the things I do when I, when I talk to IT people, when I talk to the unsung heroes, I say, can you imagine what it's like being on stage in front of 50,000 people and not one set of eyes is looking at you? Because when you're with a great performer like Pink, people will look at me, but they're really, I'm here to be of service, and they're looking at her. And so when I connect, when I'm looking at these people's eyes in the audience, I can see that unless they're turning around with their friends and sharing something like which they do sometimes, normally it's like they're having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with her. And that's really all it is. It's just one-on-one -on -one relationships with more than one person at a time. I mean, it make, uh, some of the fear might come, some of the fear may be justified in our, in our history, in our DNA. You know, like Tony Shade, when I interview him, he brought up a very good point. He said, you know, back in the day, you know, if you were, if there were, if there were a bunch of eyes on you, it usually meant you were in trouble. Like they're either trying to kill you or they're trying to eat you. So it might have been appropriate back then. So part of the, some of it, some of the DNA might be in our genetics. So there may be some actual reason that's a little deeper than we know where, where the fear comes from. But if you are living in present time, you know, and you are just stopping and being conscious and making conscious attitude shifts and remembering, okay, they're not going to eat me. They're not going to hurt me. They're not going to throw things at me. They are there simply to gain information. And let's, let's have a one-on-one -on -one conversation like you and I are speaking right now. That's the way I talk to the audience. Like, it's just a bunch of one-on-one. -on -one. I wouldn't change it. And that, for me, it really eradicates the fear when I look at it that way because it's like, well, so what? And also, there's something else that I know. Because I know that public speaking is an example or simply being on stage in front of people is one of the greatest fears. I also know that 
almost every person in that audience is going, God, thank God it's him and not me. So they want you to do well. I also believe that when you go on stage, unless someone's a real, real, a meanie or an actual enemy or somebody who's competing, nearly everybody that's in that audience wants you to do well because they see themselves in you. <laughs> and if you remember that, you kind of go, on, so you don't go on stage thinking, oh, they hate me, they hate me. No, they're so damn glad that it's you and not them. Just look at it from that standpoint. It's one-on-one. -on -one. So these are little techniques, tricks, so to speak, that, that I've told people. And we all think differently. We all need, like to use different techniques and use different things to make us feel good about ourselves or make us feel good about the experience so we feel like we're there to be of service. Again, I just think if you just look at everything as being of service right off the bat, you're in a great, you're in a great space. I love the, I love the, f the reframe there. Yeah. Because because often an audience or any kind of an audience, I mean, for some people, a big enough audience is four or five people. Yeah. Four or five people can be harder than four or five thousand. Can be intimidating because you, know, you can you actually yeah. read their faces. It can just feel like one big wave. But if you yeah. look at it as a series of one-on-ones, you go, okay, I win you over. Yeah. Right, now I'll move on to you. It just breaks it down into more manageable, yeah. more manageable pieces. Okay, now you. Okay, now you. And when I studied, uh, when I took some, uh, I, I still study with Patricia Fripp. She's a great speaking coach. I still I know study. Patricia, yes. yeah. Yeah, of course you know Patricia. But she was the one that said, you know, one of the things she noticed about me a few years ago is I was a little frenetic. I was kind of moving too much. And she said, pick one person. Look in their eyes, walk toward them. Pick another person. Look in their eyes, walk toward them. Make, so you make your movements on stage deliberate and, you're, and they're authentic. You are just like looking at somebody and you're talking to them. Then you're looking at somebody else and talking to them. And for me, that also just made it more personal. It's like, it really is just a bunch of one people. Just, it's just a bunch of one person. That's all it is. I'm just talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. When I'm playing drums, I'm playing drums for you and you and you and you. And Eva, the bass player, and Justin, the guitar player, and Pink, the singer. I'm here to be of service, man. I'm just here to be of service. I just want to make your life easy. I, 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 I realize that... You know, maybe because I'm a, I'm a drummer and I draw from my experience, you know, I believe the drummers are kind of like, we're like, the we're like the foundation, right? You think of drums as kind of the, we're the, we're the most foundational instrument. We're, we're the foundation of the house. We're the concrete. We're the mortar. We're, and so I, then I, I took that a step further and started realizing, well, what if I look at myself not only that way, but almost the shepherd of the herd, so to speak? Like, and, and then I realized, you know what? If everybody around me is happy, I'm fine. You know, I just, I'm just there to be of service. I'm just there to play drums. If I'm going to give a speech, I'm just there to talk to people, share my experience, tell them what I know, prepare the best I can. You know, if I'm nervous, if I'm over nervous, and, and it's usually because I haven't prepared enough. You know? The, you, went on to, you went on to interview 50, like your fascination with this topic, which I just yeah, it was Love. my wife's idea, too, because when I was going to write my book, the first thing I said, I'm, honey, I'm going to write a book because I have these core concepts and I know it's going to be great. And she goes, that's great, honey. He's like, eh, the voice of humility. So why don't you talk to some other people and other top performers and team leaders in other industries and get their, and get their endorsements? And that was, that was why when I wrote the first book and I'm writing the second book the same way, just applying... We're all the same. I mean, we, we're all human. We all have similar experiences. So let's see how we can sort of cross-pollinate these experiences for, for, for relativity. And we, I, I want to get into some specifics of what you learned, but what intrigued me. So you, as you said, you spoke to... Um, you spoke to Jeremy Piven, who's Ari from Entourage, Tim Sanders, Tony Shea from Zappos, who we both know, Robbie Gould. And before we get into what they taught you, 
I'm just I'm really interested like what what were you hoping to learn what were you hoping to learn from interviewing all of those different people did you have one core question kind of at the, the heart of it well yeah my well I was I was talking about clarity capability and confidence so I was talking about you know what and stage fright so what what I was actually hoping was for stories I wanted stories because I knew in the stories I could then deduce the learning points. Like, tell me a story of when you succeeded. Tell me a story of when you failed. Tell me a story of when you had a realization. Like, with a new book uh, based on ABC, it's a little bit easier to, to quantify. So I said, T talk to me about how, give me an experience of when you made a conscious shift in your attitude and that, create, and that changed the behavior and the outcome, something happened with the outcome as a result that was, that was in your favor. And give me an example of the opposite. Give me an example of when you horribly failed and you oh. knew that. And so because I'm, look, I'm looking for stories, I'm looking for life experiences. So what's your favorite story out of all the stories you've had from the first book and the second book? Which one just pops into your mind? God, that's a great question. Well, I just interviewed Jeff Clark, who's the CEO of Kodak. Now, that would be interesting. Yeah, that was interesting because I wanted to, because uh, I love hearing, and Jeff was interesting because he didn't talk as much about his own experience, about, but about his approach to understanding how to create the best culture and environment for his company. And he, well, he told me, he, he, when he took over the company, he said, you know, one of my dreams, he said, film was dead. He said, I'm a film freak. I am the CEO of Kodak and film is dead. What the hell is going on? That is not a fun position. Right. So he said, you know, I decided, and he said it was an attitude shift that I had. He said, instead of, instead of looking at it like we've lost, he said, I took it over and I decided, well, I'm going to take the, I'm going to assume the attitude it still has value. It has value to the filmmakers. It has value to the film industry. It has value to the, to the viewers because it creates a different environment. Because, because when you see something that's done on film, it has a different, it looks different, which creates different emotions. Remember, everything is based on emotions. Every, you know, every sales, every brand, every product, everything you see is really based on emotions. So he said, I'm going to reach out to the filmmakers and the producers. I'm going to call the Francis Ford Coppola's. I'm going to call the Steven Spielberg's. I'm going to get them excited about film. I'm going to get them to commit to buying film. So instead of making the film with the hopes that I'm going to sell it, which is going to cost a lot of freaking money, I'm going to get these people on as allies. I'm going to get their attitude sort of aligned with mine. And so he did. He got on the phone and called and set up all these meetings and got Spielberg and Coppola and all these other directors and people to commit to buying a certain amount of film. And then he made the film. And then they bought it. And then all of these recent, some of these most recent films that have come out, gosh, he's told me the names I'm forgetting, but some of the recent films that have come out or movies that have come out were shot on film. Because they have this sort of film has this sort of sexy, wispy effect that you can't get even from the greatest digital um, correction and the greatest digital emulation. So that was an attitude. That was uh, I'm going to. I have this attitude about how I'm going to approach it, 
And that's going to affect my behavior. I'm going to share this attitude that I'm going to drive other people to assume my attitude, to assume my love, my point of view, to get it. And he did it. He's a lovely man. He's very friendly. He's very passionate. And he's sincere. It was authentic. And, I mean, what a great story. Finding you know. your allies. Yeah, rather than allies. What I, Taking it back to a stage perspective again, rather than focusing on the person that's frowning, yeah. the person that says the film is dead, yeah. the person who's got other things to right. do, something happened that morning, you have no idea what's going on in their world, focus on your allies. And Kodak makes, a bu- they make their abundance of money from other things. Film's not their big money maker. So for him, it became a, it was, it was passion. It was a, 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 a labor of love, so to speak. It wasn't, oh, we're going to make a shit ton of money from, from film, but I do want to be back on the map with film because it matters. That's the legacy. His attitude, just, it's the legacy. His attitude is that film matters. We need more film. We need to see movies made on film still in a digital age. And so I love that. I love that story. And I love, I love how, he, how he did what he did and why he did what he did. But, you know, we talk about, you know, Simon Sinek talks about the why is so valuable. But why really is valuable? And he, cho- he believed, he found his why. Jeff Clark found his why and he aligned others with his why. You know, it's, you know, people align, align with our beliefs. They, they, they buy a product and a brand because it, it's aligned with their beliefs. It moves their emotions. The why is the emotion. It's, you know, it's not just the what and the how. A story that you, one of my favorite stories from the, from the interviews that you did, it's, I'm hoping I'm going to say this guy, Guy Fieri? Yeah. Guy Fieri. A celebrity chef, and he said to you, I got to feel the fear. Like a big part of his performance was, you know, I got to feel the fear. It keeps me acute. Yeah. Now, I think that's really interesting because some of the most successful people I have ever met or worked with or, or been involved with in any way, shape or form have this really unique relationship with fear where they actually, they walk towards it. Yeah. And I got to feel the fear. I got to find it. Cause it's well, that's when what I did with foreigner. Yeah. When I find I the, fear, to feel the fear, I felt nothing. And I thought if I'm feeling nothing, I'm not performing at my best. So what is the, what is the reframe there? What is the reframe? Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, I've read from a number of different sources that the chemistry for fear and excitement in the body are essentially the same thing. It's just, how you view it. Because if you think about when you're afraid, right, your, your, your palms sweat, you get, you get this feeling in your body, you're shaking, your, 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 heart, your heartbeat, you know, gets increased when you're excited. It's the same thing. So the reframe is the balance. The reframe is I want to have, it's, I, I use, I love the roller coaster metaphor because, you know, you're going up that roller coaster and you know you're feeling this fear, you're feeling this fear, but you know it's exciting, you know you're going to love it, but you're still afraid, you're still afraid, you're getting to the top, you're going up that the incline, you're going up that incline, you get to the top, you hold your breath, and you, ah, and you start going down, and all of a sudden you go, yes, and you love it. It's like you know, at least for most people, know they're going to love it. Not everybody loves roller coasters, but assuming you're the, that the 80 or 90% of people that actually do enjoy the experience, it is this balance between fear and excitement. It's the anticipation. And part of the anticipation, certainly like when you're going into a speech, you have a little bit of fear, a little bit of angst. You go into it because that energizes you, that drives you, that motivates you. That means you give a shit. That means you care. You care enough 
to have this emotional experience and this emotional relationship with the people that you're about to engage with whom you are going to engage and yourself. And the thing about fear, certainly when it comes to speaking, is it goes away quickly. You want to have a little bit of it. If you're feeling nothing, then you're not fully engaged in the process. And I think that's what Guy was talking about. And that's what I was talking about with foreigners. Not that I want to be overwhelmed with fear. That's stupid. That's, that's uh, you know, masoch- that's sadistic. Uh, that's how it's masochistic. But you want to have enough emotion involved that it drives you to feel something that moves you. And I believe... The right balance of fear gives you a heightened sense of awareness. Because even if you look at the animal kingdom, if an animal is scared, they are hyper aware. And so if you use a, if a little bit of that, I'm not, not ta- the, I'm not talking about the deleterious part that's overwhelming. I'm talking about the part that's enough of balance that, you, that drives you and pushes you. And then you, then it's a release. And then you're on stage for me, if I, from my experience, that I'm on stage, and then it turns into excitement, and it's it's this fine sort of balance where you're on the roller coaster and you're like f- enjoying it. And what's the one thing we say that mo- almost everybody says at the end of the roller coaster ride? I want to do it again. Again, the there's there's two things actually that you reminded me of. Two things that I have held onto when it comes to when it comes to fear. One is, as I've got older, I've started to recognize the voice. You know, I don't know when it kicks in for you or if it kicks in for you, but for me, it's usually if I've got to do something big, it's usually the day before. And this voice will kick in and we'll go, you, you can't, we can't do this. Like, you can't, really, did you think you could, you can't do this. Just, just cancel it, call it off. We cannot do this. And I've heard it enough times now. I think if you, if you somehow push past it, ignore it, sidestep it enough times, then it starts to become like this little almost caricature and you start to go, oh, there you are. I recognize you. You show up the day before every time. Yeah. Like, hey, and we always do it. And it's always, you know, sometimes it doesn't go great, but it's never terrible. You know, it's yeah. never life alteringly right. bad. So there's that one, just recognizing the voice. Yeah. And separating yourself from it. Yeah. The second one is when you feel fear, for me anyway, when you feel fear, you know you're playing at the edges. You know, you're playing at the edges of what you thought you were capable yeah. of. And it's in those edges where you, you get that sensation of, oh my God, I'm alive. Yeah. Like I am full, I can feel every cell in my body tingling right now. And yes, I might feel terrified, but I am fully, I am yeah. fully alive. I'm, I'm playing at the I'm edges of aware. where yeah. I thought I could go. Totally. I agree. Well, here's the thing. The, the way that I look at it is from, from, a, from a metaphysical standpoint, if you will, um, we are not our minds. We are senior to our minds. There is a being. There's, we are in there. And the mind is there. The mind is like a child. The mind is subordinate. So at a point, you just got to like tell the mind, no, this is what we're doing. The mind, it can be like, a, like an indignant child and can be the one that's also there to protect you. You know, I mean, it isn't, you know, it isn't natural to get on a big roller coaster and be swung, you know, thrown around. On one level, you know, I'm going to be fine. But on another level, you're doing something that isn't natural for your innate survival. Or if you're going to go bungee jumping, or if you're going to jump out of a plane, or if you're going to get up and speak in front of 2,000 people, there's something a little unnatural about that to you. So, you know, the mind is doing its job, warning you, saying, uh, are you sure about this? Uh, you know, this is a little crazy. This is out of our comfort zone. This is, 
sidestepping and could be threatening to our survival. And that's just what it comes down to. And that's why, why I talked about genetics. I mean, I, you know, we are genetic beings. I believe that there is genetic and cellular memory that does come from other times, and some of the warnings are valid. I mean, I want to jump out of a plane. I told my wife and my kid, I said, when you turn 18, I'm going to jump out of a plane because my wife doesn't want me to do it until she is 18 at I, I least. I cannot do this by you know. myself. Um, yeah, is that unnatural? Hell yeah. Is it dangerous? Yes, you could die from that. But the truth is when you get up and give a presentation, you're not going to die from that. <laughs> um, if you get on a roller coaster, highly unlikely you're going to die from that. Highly unlikely you're going to die from any of these things. But people love doing things that, with a, that stimulate adrenaline because, yes, it makes them feel alive. It makes them feel present. Um, you can also do the same thing with meditation, which is just the opposite. You can feel totally present and totally alive being completely still when you're just absolutely in the moment. Which is um, interesting because it's the same thing, hey. It's so, a, you're absolutely in right. the moment, one way or so, another. So, you know, what it, what it comes down to is balance. And it comes down to knowing what your, um, knowing how far you can, knowing how far you can push yourself and knowing what's, uh, knowing yourself. And, but, but I do believe, you know, I, I had a, a therapist tell me once, you know, every day do something that's a little out of your comfort zone. A little, not a lot, just a little, just, you know, talk to a stranger you wouldn't have talked to. Um, move, turn right instead of left. Take a different way to work. Do, do something that's just, just driving you to do things a little bit different so your body gets different experiences. You know, Jim Quick, the memory expert, he's like, brush your teeth with your opposite hand in the morning. You know, like just do something. Just shuck your system. Just do something that changes things up just the slightest bit because it just takes you out of that that comfort zone. I mean, I talk about, you know, people uh, disruption and people talking about thinking outside the box. You know, my feeling is I get very rock and roll. I said there is no damn box. Because the truth is, there isn't a box. I mean, the people that are achieving great things are the ones that just see possibilities and don't and are willing to um, do whatever it takes. One of the things, um, one of the tips that I got again talking about fear. One of the tips that I got from you from reading reading your stuff and, and listening to you speak was. That once you feel fear, I'm going to use your language now, you you get free to fail. Before any big gig, yeah. um, you practice being free to fail. Can yeah. you just walk me through Freedom what that Freedom is means? a big thing. Well, i got to bring up a gentleman, Dr. Jim Samuels. He's one of the great mentors of my life. He has he, – I'm writing the second book with him because ABC is actually his concept. And, and my uh, clarity, capability, confidence, I – derived from clear, capable, confident, which is one of his and one of his concepts, and then I expanded on them. So he's a great, great thinker and one of my dear friends and has had a great influence on me. And he was the one that taught me about freedom flows um, and being free to and free not to. And it's an interesting concept because being free for something to happen doesn't mean you want it to happen. It means you have freedom in your head so, like, I'm free to fail. One of the things that I do when I go on stage is I, not, not as much anymore, but, like, when I was speaking to these corporate audiences and I, and I felt like an imposter, like, what the hell? 
freaking rock and roll drummer getting up in front of a bunch of executives. What am I doing? I, what? Who the hell do I think I am? And then I, one of the things I would do before I go on stage was I say, "Are you free to fail? Are you free to fail big? Are you free to fail so bad you get on that drum stool, you fall off, you break your arm, or in your mid, you're in the middle of saying something and they start laughing at you and they just think you're totally full of crap? Am I free not to fail? And then." I do the opposite. Am I free to succeed? Am I free not to succeed? What you're doing is you're just creating... Space? Well, you're creating an openness in your mind so you're, not, you're, you're a little less attached to the outcome. Because sometimes you fail. Like, am I free to drop a drumstick? Yes. Am I free not to? Yes. Am I free to hold on to my sticks? Yes. Am I free not to hold on to my sticks? And this concept of freedom is a very important thing because as humans, I believe that humans really do like to have freedom of choice. You know, sometimes we want to be told what to do, but most of the time we want freedom of choice. So all you're doing is you're expanding on a natural human instinct of wanting freedom of choice. And it's hard to feel free, just thinking of what you're saying, it's, it's hard to feel free when you're in avoidance, isn't it? Because right. the, the natural feeling of avoidance is you're almost, you're hiding in a corner, which yeah. is the opposite of feeling free. Yeah. Whereas what you're saying is envisage the worst thing that you imagine. Yeah. Walk towards it, feel into it, feel like you're free to do it. Yeah. Ha- create some space around it so it's allowed to be there. And then you can get out of the corner. Yeah. And walk past it, around it, go find new things, go focus on something else. But s- step out of avoidance of it. And my friend, Dr. Jim, one of the things we used to do when we worked together years ago, he'd say, Let, let's play this out. What are you afraid of? Uh, I'm afraid uh, that this girl's going to turn me down if I ask her on a date. Okay, she, churn, she turned you down. Now what? Um, okay, I, I call up another girl, um, but, and, but the other girl knows that the other girl thinks that I'm a dweeb. And so she won't go up and say, okay, she thinks you're a dweeb. Now what? So you just keep on playing it out until a point where you kind of release and laugh. And after a while, you complete the cycle of all the things that you're afraid of failing about. And eventually you kind of come back to, oh, this is cool. Talking of imagining yourself falling off stage and being taken away by an ambulance. Yeah. Taking that segue for a moment. One of the amazing stories you have is when you played at the Grammys when you played at the Grammys with Pink. Mm-hmm. And you were looking out and all your heroes were, right. were in the audience and Pink is not on stage. I mean, you yeah. tell it way better. So I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Well, I just, we were, we were playing and then I look in the audience and, and, and I realize, you know, this, is, this was the, the Grammys that Ringo and Paul were both in the audience. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, playing, their, I'm playing for two Beatles. I'm like the biggest Beatles freak in the, in the, in the, in the world. And I realize, oh my God, two of the Beatles, two of the only living Beatles are in the audience. And there's Pink doing aerial ballet. And at one point she was right above Ringo. And then I had this horrible feeling in my stomach for one second. Like, what if she falls? She, Pink falls on Ringo. It's like my, my, my biggest hero is dead and I'm out of a job, you know? And Pink's got no net. Yeah. She's got no net. She's got no net. She's got it can no- happen. And and you said that she doesn't pre-record now for anybody. So she, and she will only sing live. I didn't know what that meant when I first heard that, but essentially yes. what it means yeah. is most artists that they're doing complicated dance moves or they're doing complicated yeah. whatevers, they pre-record the vocals sort of. They lose their breath, right. they lose their place. Th- Even Michael vocals. Jackson did. Whereas Pink At will not do that. She so she's do she's hanging from the ceiling, doing yes. aerial doing, doing aerial stunts above Ringo Starr, singing live without a net, singing live without a net at the Grammys. 
which will yeah. then be watched by billions of people yeah. across multiple right. platforms. And if you get your, if you get your, it's head, hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, that. if you get your head around that, just it's for hard. A it's hard it's, there's so much going on. It's like, but that was what was funny to me is that was uh, I mean that was a, a, an amazing moment, and that little bit of fear only happened for a split second because I thought she's not going to fall. I mean, she, you know. But you said you've said that she, she is. Fearless. She feels. She feels fearless. She. She very rarely I don't, experiences. I don't. I don't. I, I would say just the opposite. She's would not you? fearless. Because she feels. Fearless. She feels fear. She just does it anyway. Right. Right. Because that was my. That was my difference. thought. The, that's the difference between a lot of people. It's like okay, I might be afraid. You know, like when I asked her. You know, we did the the, the American Music Awards. <laughs> she was hanging from a forty-story building doing aerial ballet. She was, uh, what's 200 feet? About 65 meters above the ground, hanging from a 40-story building, doing aerial ballet, facing the ground on wires up against the building, singing live. And I thought, of all the things you've done, and you've done some pretty frightening things, I just thought, and this is pretty insane. I mean, this is kind of takes the cake. And this was just last AMA, so it was last October. And, and I asked her, because we were talking, because she does so many of these death-defying things. After a while, you know, she's not going to feel, you assume she's not going to feel a lot of fear. Like um, when, she, when she spins around during So What at the end of every show and she's spinning around and we call the 360 thing and she's dropping and going speeds of up to 20 kilometers an hour and, and, dr- and dropping up to, you know, 10 meters. And, and, you know, after a while, she's not going to feel that much fear because she's done it so many times. I, like I remember me and my girlfriend, we, we went on the biggest roller coaster at this uh, in Orlando and we were really afraid. And they said, well, as a, I, I just want to go on this so many times. So we went on it eight times in a row. So because by the eighth time, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I kind of got over it. But when I asked Pink, I said, well, at what point when you were doing that, were you not afraid? And she said, uh, I was afraid the whole time. It never, the fear never went away. <laughs> I just did it anyway. That's just who she is. You've also said that the... One of the keys, and you've used Pink as an example with that as well, one of the keys to being free to fail is when you're vulnerable enough to say that I might fail. Like I, yeah. I, I might fail at this. And you use an example of Pink saying she was really nervous getting on stage one night and you, f- you were wondering why because she wasn't usually that nervous and you realized she was going to play the piano and she'd never really played the right. piano. She right. hadn't done the time. Right. And so fear in that case was completely appropriate. Right, so what it was she, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. So and what it was she the funniest did. thing. And the thing is, that, and she would, she, when she would get up to play the piano, she made mistakes often. It's almost like it didn't matter. Like, you know, she, well, I don't want to say often, but every once in a while she'd get up there, she'd play, and she'd stop, and she'd go, wow, okay, I fucked that one up, and she'd start over again. And immediately the audience, it also gets rid of the white elephant in the room. Because as, as I said before, people want you to do well. So sometimes it's just good to admit it. Like, I've been on stage, I'm sure, I'm sure it's happened to you as a speaker, right? I've been on stage, and I've just completely blanked out. And every time that happens, I go to the audience, I go, you guys, I totally forgot what I'm going to say next. Hang on a second. I got to check my notes. And they don't care. It's not like they go, oh, wow, Mark's a bad speaker. It's like they're, they're going, phew, oh, he's human. Oh, good. Like, wow, he forgets too. It happens. She gets on stage and forgets lyrics all the time. She's saying these songs hundreds of times. It's almost like the audience is, if they're with you, they're with you. 
You know, I mean, there are certain times where if you make a mistake, yeah, it matters. If you're an Olympic ice skater and you make one and you make one little mistake, it matters to the overall outcome. I understand, but most of the time, in most of our situations, even if you make a mistake, that's why freedom comes in handy. Just be free to make the mistake because if you make the mistake, it's usually never as bad as you think. You said that which is a, another thing you said that I loved because I had this thing about the word confidence. I have a... About... The word confidence. The word confidence, yes. I don't have a love-hate or a hate-hate relationship yeah, with that right, word yeah. because I feel like it's one of those words that people use in the sentence, I will do it when. I will do yeah. it when I feel more confident. I will right. get up and right. say my piece when I feel more confident. And I feel like confidence is the result. You get confident, when, like the roller coaster, you get yeah. confident when you've done it enough times. It's right. not the pre-existing con condition. Right. It is the result. It's the result. And exactly. what you have said, which again, I just love because I'm all about the word certainty at the moment. I've got a fascination with it. And you said confidence is the state of being certain. certain. It's just the state of being certain. Yeah. And you can be certain at any point. You can just be feeling, today I am certain that I'm giving you the best that I've got. Yeah. And that is enough. Right. And certainty is an interesting word. For me, I've thought about that word a lot. And even when, I, when we put that definition in state of being certain, um, I even question that a little bit because like, uh, part of me is like, well, are you ever certain? But isn't there a difference between speaking with certainty and being certain? And there might not be, but just playing uh, with yes. those two. Speaking two. with certainty means you're speaking with authority because, again, you've done the work. Being, having absolute certainty that things are, that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, I, I love the fact that you have a relationship with that word because that's an interesting, I, I have more of an adversarial relationship with the word certainty than I do confidence. Because confidence is still, you, you can have sort of levels of confidence in a way. You can't really have levels of certainty. Certainty, you're just, you're either, well, all right, maybe, okay, now, see, I'm changing my attitude, my viewpoint. I guess you can. I don't, I feel like but when But can you're, you? Like, okay, let me ask you a question. Okay. So do you believe you can have different levels of certainty? I believe that there is, and I've thought a lot about this word as well. Yeah. Um, I believe that there is a difference. I believe that for me to feel certain, it's a closed off feeling. It means that there is no way I will ever change my mind. No new information comes in. I am certain. And so it's I, a decision. No, and, and that's a negative state for me to be certain about something. Even in my voice, it changes. Mm. It becomes far yeah, more you, aggressive. You, your brow is firm. Yeah, I get very kind of... Uh, the flip for me is to speak with certainty because to speak with certainty to me means in this moment, I give you the best... The, the best of what I've got, the best of everything right. that I have ever learned. I like that. I'm going to go with your definition. It makes yeah. me feel good about certainty. So to speak with certainty feels very different than to be certain. Okay, good. I like that. Let's go with that. See, again, these are like the attitude shifts. It's like, how do you, where, how, how do you want to view it? Where do you want to view it from? So I like that. I'll go with that. There's one, there's one final thing, one final part of your journey that I wanted to explore with you sure. before, before we finish. And that's your journey with testicular cancer. I don't want to go so much into the ins and outs sure, of that yeah. but more how it relates to what we've been talking about yeah because again it's, an, it's another fascination of mine where you know we've talked essentially about showing up yeah a lot of the time so how do you how do you show up how do you show up as fearlessly as you can how do you show up despite the level of fear that you might be feeling how do you be of service to the highest level that you can be which means taking the largest stages that you can yeah however however the context of that t turns out to be and 
the fascination that I have is around, it's one thing showing up. When you're good, when life is good, when you're full energy, when, yeah. you, when you feel like it, yeah. when it's, it's pretty exciting. Easy. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. Even when you're nervous. Yeah. It is a whole other thing. So let's just take your world, which is yeah. drama to pink. You've got tours, as we've talked yeah. about before we came on air. You've got promoters. You've got managers. You know, there is a, a very tight schedule that happens. Yeah. It's another thing having to show up at a period of your life where you don't feel like showing up. Yeah. And you feel uncertain and you don't feel like potentially you have the energy or the mojo to share. Yeah. And during that period of your life, what was it like for you to have to show up then? And did it take something different than it takes to show up usually? Well, a couple things. My, my, by nature, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. So that's a funny balance, something to deal with. So like I, one little thing goes on and I, te- I tend to need to pay attention to um, keeping that you know, in control, so to speak. Um, the other thing is perspective or attitude, where you're looking from. When I got testicular cancer, um, had I gotten it without the experience, my ex-wife had cancer our whole relationship. She almost died. She had Hodgkin's disease. It reoccurred. She ended up having a stem cell transplant. She ended up, you know, going to date. She's had nearly 100 blood transfusions. So I went through all this really horrible stuff with her as, as a caregiver on the other side of it. So my experience with testicular cancer was interesting because when I got testicular cancer, I was upset. You know, I cried. I felt a little emasculated because it's a testicle. It has to do with your manhood. And I went went through a few things like that, but very little because I had a basis of comparison because after seeing what she went through, mine was like a walk in the park. So it's fascinating. And I don't want to, you know, people say, no matter how bad things are, it could always be worse or it's always worse for somebody else. That's true. But I had, a, I had already lived that. So by the time I had it, I was like, I remember the, the hardest day I had was I was doing an all-day drumming session. And I was going through, I would had my testicle removed and I was going through abdominal radiation. Because I was lucky because it was encapsulated and they thought, okay, it, it hasn't metastasized into your belly or your brain like it did with Lance Armstrong. It can kill you. If they catch it early enough, it's very curable. So I was lucky. I, I, was, I was lucky. The way I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm lucky. I got the most, one of the most curable cancers. I went in for something else. They happened to find it by a fluke. And one day I'm sitting here, I'm doing a session. And they said, okay, well, the abdominal radiation, it, it might make you nauseous about a week after you start doing it. Well, I did it the day before for the first time. I'm doing this recording session. I am so nauseous the whole day. But I remember leaning up against, literally getting, doing, doing the recording, leaning up against the wall and ha- being a combination of nauseous and so grateful that that's all I had. If this is it, I could take it. Because after seeing what my ex-wife Kelly went through, it was a walk in the park. So what made it bearable to me is I had a point of reference. So if you rewind, if I had never gone through the experience of having seen how bad it can be for somebody else and literally living it as the caregiver. It's sometimes it's harder to be the person being the caregiver 
or I don't want I don't want to say it's harder than being the patient ever because that's unfair to the patient. But it's so hard to see somebody you love and care for going through something so horrible. So by the time I went through it, I was like, oh, God, I can get through this. So again, attitude, it's all perspective. Where are you coming from? How do you see it? You know, do you, if you see it from a standpoint of this is absolutely horrible and it's the end of my life. And, and trust me, because I have those hypochondriac tendencies, I could have been that guy. But I just, saw, I just chose to view it from a different attitude. I chose like, shit, I'm lucky as hell. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you my final question. Sure. And it's the question that I, usually, that I usually end with. And it always makes me giggle a bit when I ask somebody with experiences such as yours. If I could give you a stage, which I don't need to, because <laughs> just tomorrow <laughs> yeah. you'll be in front of 50,000 people. If I give you a stage and a microphone and in front of you I could put every single person you would ever want to influence. Ever? Ever want to influence. Okay. What's the one thing you would want them to know? I think I'm going to stick with ABC. Because I think that that is one of the most profound bits of information that, that people... That everybody needs to have and everybody needs to understand that you can choose your attitude and your attitude is where you're looking from and where you're looking from determines what you see. But I will add one more thing to it. Choose your attitude wisely and choose an attitude that affects the highest good of all concern as opposed to simply your concern. Because I think that we need, we owe it to each other to have responsibility for each other as opposed to just ourselves. So it's not about personal gain. Because I believe that the most, the most joy I've ever gotten in my life has not been from what I've received, but from what I've given. So that's part of selecting your attitude wisely. It's like, what can I give? What can I do today that's going to benefit others? Because I said before, as, as the drummer is the shepherd, I realized early on, and even with my wife and my family, if everybody around me is happy, I'm fine. I'm taken care of. If you're happy, I'm happy. It's, the truth is I don't need much. None of us really need much. If we, if we think we need much, that's in our head. We just need, we want to be peaceful. We want to have, we want to be loved, and we want to love. So if you have some, the, the basic simple things, and you have survival, you know, a little bit of money in the bank, some food, some shelter, and some good influence. And it's also very critical that you feed your mind good stuff. Important to feed your mind good stuff. Because what you feed your mind is going to influence and impact how you think and then what you're able to give back to the world. So I'm careful about what I feed my mind. Mark Schumann, thank you so much. My pleasure. For being on the podcast and for taking time <laughs> I'm out. I'm sorry if that, if that last answer was too long. <laughs> no. Do you know what? It was just perfect. And you right. finished, and you even finished with the word influence. So it was perfect. <laughs> thank you. It's been a joy. Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.